ideas that challenge the standard paradigm. That's the accepted model of the day. And these ideas go against what many people naturally think to be true and real. Uh, a dangerous idea has strong uh, implications in terms of uh, worldview ideas. And so tonight we'll look at the doctrine of creation. What, what is it that the doctrine of creation says distinctly from a Christian point of view? And what are its implications? So the biblical doctrine of creation is, in fact, a dangerous idea with far-reaching worldview implications. Often what we hear today by secularists is that planet Earth is a just a, a normal, take-for-granted planet in a, a typical universe. There really isn't much special about us. And so we're here on this planet and uh, we're going to ultimately go extinct. And so there really isn't anything special about our place in the world. We're not at the center of the universe. We're not at the center of even the solar system. And so often the, the name of Galileo will be brought up and they'll say that uh, what we realize is that planet Earth and humanity is not very special at all. So we're here, and we're here by, by chance. We're here by pure natural processes. And so the doctrine of creation is a dangerous idea because it says something very different about the nature of the universe, planet Earth, and ultimately human beings. So let me talk a bit as we show how the doctrine of creation turns that paradigm upside down. The Christian doctrine of creation ex nihilo. What does it mean? Well, Bruce Milne, he says this. He says, quote, Creation is that work of the triune God by which he called all things that exist, both material and spiritual, into existence out of non-existence. So creation ex nihilo means that God, appealing only to his infinite power and incalculable wisdom, he reached into that which did not exist and brought something into existence. So there's no pre-existent materials. God is fundamentally different than us in that he can call things into existence that did not exist. And so Creation, again, according to Milne, is that work of the triune God by which he called all things that exist, both material and spiritual, into exist out of non-existence. So ex nihilo means out of nothing. Theologian Richard Muller defines the Latin term ex nihilo as a reference, quote, to the divine creation of the world, not of pre-existent and therefore eternal materials, but out of nothing. So the, the scenario is this. Only God existed. Only the triune God existed. And God then called everything else into existence out of nothing. In eternity, there was only God. And he created everything else that exists. So not out of pre-existent materials. Greek philosophy, Plato. Plato believed that there were... Uh, eternal forms. Uh, he believed that uh, there were things that were uh, created that had pre-existed, kind of like a, 
a retreaded tire, but a biblical perspective, a Christian perspective, says that God calls things into existence out of nothing. So the biblical doctrine of creation ex nihilo affirms that all of creation had a singular beginning from nothing and is completely dependent upon God for its coming into being and for its continued existence. And so Augustine used to say that creation is a double miracle. First, that it exists. And then, second, that it remains in existence. And so the doctrines of creation and God's providence work hand in glove. God created the world out of nothing, and then by his providential power, he holds it into existence. If God were to remove his hand, so to speak, of course I'm speaking metaphorically, God doesn't have hands, he doesn't have a body. He's an infinite, eternal, tripersonal spirit. But To speak metaphorically, if God were to remove his power, if he were to remove his involvement in the creation, the creation would then tumble into non-existence. Here are passages that bespeak the creation ex nihilo. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There are scholars who try to propose that the Bible doesn't teach creation ex nihilo, that it doesn't imply a singular beginning. Some of them even propose that that maybe there was a creation out of some kind of pre-existent stuff. But the best exegetical interpretation of Genesis 1 is that God has independently created out of nothing. But to buttress, let's look at a couple other passages. Here's Proverbs 3.19. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundation. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. And so rather than appealing to some kind of pre-existent reality, God falls back upon his infinite understanding. It's his understanding. uh, It's his wisdom that he draws upon. He doesn't create out of something that previously existed, it's by his power and his wisdom and his understanding. So in the beginning, God created uh, the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1 bespeaks a beginning to the universe. Here are two passages that I think are very important in buttressing the creation ex nihilo from the New Testament point of view. The first one is Romans 4.17, the latter part of verse 17. Paul writes, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Calls things that are not as though they were. The implication is, again, God creates by speaking. God creates by command. And God calls things into existence out of non-existence. So the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. And so in in the book of Genesis, it says that uh, God created light. The Hebrew can be interpreted this way. uh, Light be and light was. God commands and speaks and things take place. Here's another important passage in terms of creation ex nihilo. It's Hebrews 11.3. The author of Hebrews says, quote, uh, 
by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, there are commentators who suggest that maybe what the author of Hebrews meant was that God had created the universe not out of nothing, but out of an invisible reality. But it's, again, when we look at this passage uh, in context, uh, the overwhelming uh, direction that this passage takes is that it's not talking about uh, uh, things that are visible and things that are invisible. It is speaking about God creating things that, that had no existence to begin with. And so things that are not as though they were and that which was seen was not made out of what was visible. God created ex nihilo, out of nothing or from nothing. Now, another part of this lecture is, of course, uh, to talk about the dangerous idea of creation. And one of the parts of that dangerous idea is that the universe came into existence, that it was not always here. Uh, and think of a greater miracle. Go ahead and try. Think of a greater miracle than everything that existed, matter, energy, space, and time, to use the language of the modern physicist, that everything that exists came into, non, came into existence from non-existence. Everything popped into being. Of course, we believe that it took time and development and all of those things. But that is a dangerous idea, that the universe was not always here. How do we know there is a God? Well, again, we go back to uh, this kind of basic fundamental philosophical, metaphysical question uh, that Leibniz, the German philosopher, asked, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be more natural that nothing exists, but something does exist? Well, then why does it exist? So this dangerous idea, if you don't believe in miracles, then what do you say about the idea that Everything that now exists came into existence. Is that not the greatest miracle? And a second part of this dangerous idea is not just that the universe came into existence from non-existence and therefore implies a causal, personal causal agent behind it, but there is also this element of the doctrine of creation that God created the world for the purpose of creating human beings, that the, the world, the cosmos, was created for the purpose of having human beings live out their destiny. So here is a quote from the theologian and scientist Alistair McGrath, British scholar. He says, quote, the anthropic principle, which stated in a weak or strong form, is strongly consistent with a theistic perspective. A theist, for example, a Christian with a firm commitment to the doctrine of creation, will find the fine-tuning of the universe to be an anticipated and pleasant confirmation of his religious beliefs. So the idea of the anthropic principle is that it looks like, it appears to be, that the universe 
was created in such a way as to allow for and to lead to the emergence of human beings. So that's the dangerous idea. Two parts of it. That the universe came into existence and also that it's fine-tuned. It has all of the... To use an analogy, it appears that in order uh, to allow for human beings to come on the scene that all of the dials that would be needed to create a framework or to create a foundation for human life, it's like all of the dials have been, been, been programmed just right to allow for the emergence of human beings. So the dangerous idea of creation is that the universe came into existence and that it appears to have been created in such a way specifically to allow for human beings. We call that the anthropic. Anthropic or anthropos is the Greek word for man or for human beings. Okay. The biblical doctrine of creation ex nihilo, that the universe came into being out of non-being, non-existence, and that it seems to have a fine-tuned element to it, the biblical doctrine of creation ex nihilo comports well with the scientific findings that, and here is the modern cosmology, one, that the universe had a singular beginning in time. That is the scientific perspective today, that the universe had a singular beginning in time. Uh, and that the universe exhibits exquisite fine-tuning to allow for the ultimate emergence of human life. And so the doctrine of creation ex nihilo seems to comport quite well with modern cosmology. Again, the universe had a singular beginning. Time itself had a beginning. And that the universe has this exquisite fine-tuning to ultimately allow human beings to come on the scene. Well, here are a number of quotations that I'd like us to consider as we think about modern cosmology, as we think about how the biblical doctrine of creation relates to, uh, uh, relates to the scientific cosmology, and we, we see this dangerous idea unfolding because the Bible was written in, in antiquity. How could the Bible describe the universe in such a way that 2,000 years later, uh, two or 3,000 years later, people would actually see that the ancients had written about the universe in a way that comports well with modern technology. Well, here is a quote from two of the leading physicists and cosmologists in the world. This is Stephen Hawking and Roger Penrose. Uh, In The Nature of Space and Time, page 20, they say this. They say, quote, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. That's a very powerful statement. Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Now, the Bible also talks about time, and it mentions a couple times in Scripture uh, that there was something before time. Uh, The Apostle Paul talks about God's plan, which was foreordained before the beginning of time. Well, here we have uh, two of the brightest 
scientists in the world saying that uh, Big Bang cosmology is, is essentially the standard interpretation about how our universe came into being. Now, I know that there are Christians, and quite a number of them actually, that are a bit uncomfortable with Big Bang cosmology, but I have to say that I wonder if, we, if those folks do not need to maybe think again about this topic. Because it appears that Big Bang cosmology is the scientific interpretation for what we know in biblical and theological terms to be the doctrine of creation. So the Big Bang, rather than being a potential threat, actually seems to comport with what the Bible says about God creating the universe. Again, Hawking and Penrose, and Stephen Hawking has been called the Einstein of our times. Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Now here's another quotation by leading astrophysicists John Barrow and Joseph Silk. Uh, They state the following concerning the Big Bang universe. They say, quote, uh, our new picture is more akin to the traditional metaphysical picture of creation out of nothing. For it predicts a definite beginning to events in time, indeed a definite beginning to time itself. Now, Barrow and Silk are not religious men. They are not theologians. They're not philosophers. They are two of the the most uh, eminent of astrophysicists. And look at the language they use. Our new picture is more akin to the traditional metaphysical picture of what? Of creation out of nothing. For it predicts a definite beginning to events in time, indeed a definite beginning to time itself. There aren't any holy books of the ancient world that speak of a beginning of time other than the Bible. In the ancient Near Eastern creation myths, the gods and the people and the earth and everything else often came out of water and uh, there are pre-existent realities and things are shaped and done uh, of those things. But here you have these physicists using the language and they talk about the traditional metaphysical picture. Well, that traditional metaphysical picture is biblical creationism. Creation out of nothing. A creation to time itself. Now, here's a fascinating picture. I, I have to say, I, I find cosmology to be so gripping and uh, so uh, uh, attractive. Um, I think because it, it, it gets right to the ultimate issues, to the, to the big questions. Uh, this is not a robin's egg, even though it might look like a, a robin's egg. This is actually a photograph uh, that uh, came from the uh, Kobe uh, Explorer. Uh, this is what, what is called the cosmic microwave background radiation. And so you have these incredible telescopes, and they really are incredible. Uh, you have, for example, uh, we'll talk a little bit later about the Hubble telescope. And my colleagues that I work with uh, tell me that Uh, Today, almost nobody looks through the lens of a telescope. Uh, All of these incredibly large and powerful telescopes 
of course, take in photographic data. They take pictures. They take photographs. And then ultimately they examine the data that's drawn in. So the idea of Galileo kind of looking through a lens. Well, today we have these, these computers uh, and this technology that photographs all of this data. And then they, they analyze it. Well, what you're seeing there with that big red line that runs, uh, that oval shape, not a robin's egg, that's the early universe. Now, again, I'm not a scientist, and so you have to hold me accountable here. Uh, but I talk with uh, Dr. Ross and uh, Dr. Zwerink and Dr. Rogstad, who are uh, three members of the Reasons to Believe science staff. And what they, uh, what they tell me is that astronomy is a unique science. Uh, when you look at the sun, you're not seeing the sun as it is right that second. It's, the sun is so far away, it's taken eight minutes for the light to get here, and so you're looking at the past. Even when you look at the moon, it isn't the moon as it is just the second. Uh, some time has gone by for the light to travel. So these powerful telescopes are able to look back into time. So here is a quotation regarding the cosmic microwave background radiation. Uh, it says, using instruments on, on NASA's Cosmic Background Explorer, the COBE, the satellite, they were able to see details of the remnants of the Big Bang almost to the beginning of time. Within 300,000 years of that event, some 13.7 billion years ago. So this big red streak, um, it's uh, radiation. Now, why is all this radiation uh, all around? And why is it uniform? Because it's the echo or the after effect of the Big Bang. Now, my, again, my colleagues at RTB, they, they always tell me incredible things. Uh, I'm old enough to remember some of the old radios, and you'd turn the dial and you'd get static. Uh, some of that static was from the Big Bang from the beginning of the universe itself. By the way, when you drink water, like uh, I've been given a nice bottle of cool water here, uh, some of the atoms in this water go way, way back. So this is, a, this is an incredible thing. The echo, the after effect of the Big Bang, this is what, in, by and large, led to the confirmation that the universe had a beginning. The other cosmological theories were, were uh, done damage to when they discovered the cosmic background radiation. Uh, this comes from uh, the uh, discovery of uh, Arno Penzias and Dick Wilson, uh, who uh, uh, were the two that received the Nobel Prize for the study of uh, the cosmic background radiation. Well, to quote Arno Penzias, the Nobel Prize winner, uh, with his colleague, made, he makes this comment. And I want you to listen to this. Uh, my understanding is that Penzias has become a Christian. Uh, he may have been a Christian for quite some time, but he is a, a Nobel laureate. He says, quote, astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing. 
one with the very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the conditions required to permit life, and one which has an underlying, one might say supernatural, plan. That, that is a dangerous idea. That right there, Arnold Penzias has summed it up so well, the universe that was created out of nothing and that it seems to have all of the necessary conditions to permit intelligent life. Again, this is Arnold Penzias saying this, one of the uh, discoverers of the cosmic background radiation and received the Nobel Prize, I believe, in 1978. Here's another, theory, here's another scientist, theoretical physicist and mathematician, Freeman Dyson. I believe that Professor Dyson had some connection with Princeton, if, I, if my memory is correct. He made this profound statement relating to the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, I want you to notice that these quotations are not coming from people who've just fallen off the watermelon truck. These are not from people who are... Uh, untrained. These are some of the brightest scientists in the world who have who've received many awards for their work in science. And I want you to recognize that these men give some credibility uh, to a metaphysical interpretation, to a traditional religious interpretation. Here's what Freeman Dyson says, and I, I want you to listen to these words very carefully. This is one of the most moving quotations I've ever read from a scientist. He says, quote, as we look out at the universe and identify the many accidents of physics and astronomy that have worked together for our benefit, it almost seems as if the universe must in some sense have known that we were coming. Wow. I remember the first time I read that. It seems like it's rigged. Somebody's monkeyed with the mathematics, is what Fred Hoyle said. It appears as if all of the dials are just right to allow for the emergence of human beings. The universe, to quote it again, it almost seems as if the universe must in some sense have known that we were coming. Well, that's exactly what the Bible says. That's exactly what the Christian doctrine of creation says, that the universe was created to allow for the emergence of human beings. Again, some of these incredible telescopes. This is from the Hubble Ultra Deep Field Photograph. I'm going to, my, my colleague, Dr. Rogstad, who worked for many, many years at uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which, of course, is under NASA, he has some uh, still photos that he's going to give me one, and I'm going to bring it in uh, to my class here at church. But uh, this is an incredible photograph. Uh, again, those, uh, those things up there that, that kind of look like, uh, I don't know, what do they look like? They look like a Frisbee. They look like, uh, first of all, they're, they're, not, they're not UFOs. Okay, so we'll rule that out. Uh, they're galaxies. This is, again, that incredible ability to look and to draw this data in, and we see the early forming of these galaxies. So the question here is, the cosmos, did it unfold in anticipation of human beings? Was it made for man? 
Was it made to allow for man? Again, that's that anthropic principle. Anthropos meaning human beings. I might note in our postmodern age that uh, when philosophers use the word man, they always meant human, not male, but human. Okay. Now, one of the things that I'd like to look at a little bit this evening, of course, is uh, this dangerous idea of the universe having a beginning, time itself having a beginning, and that the universe was created to allow for the emergence of human life. Let's ask the skeptical question. Are there possible explanations for the beginning of the universe that don't involve a divine personal creator? I mean, it's too easy just to say, well, it's a slam dunk. This has to be uh, the creator. What about some possible alternatives? Well, let's, let's, look at, let's look at four of them. And we'll call this options in cosmology, if you will. The first option is, what about the idea that you have a self-created universe? What, what about the possibility that maybe the universe created itself? Maybe, maybe what you and I call God, maybe what you and I call that ultimate reality, maybe somehow it's tied into the universe. So maybe we don't have to opt for something transcendent above and beyond the universe. Maybe it's the universe itself. Well, let's, look, let's think a little bit about a self-created universe. The first option is that the universe somehow caused or created itself. This conclusion, however, appears irrational because in order to create itself, the universe would have to exist before it existed. And that would indeed be a clear absurdity. Something can't both exist and not exist at the same time and in the same way. How would something create itself? It'd have to exist before it existed, and if it existed before it existed, it wouldn't need to create itself. Nevertheless, there are people who still kind of today talk about the universe as kind of being compacted. But it, it, it does seem that there is a fundamental coherence problem with the idea of a self-created universe. Now, another option, again, considering options in cosmology, another option, a second one, number two, the universe popped into existence from nothing and by no one. Okay, let's grant that the universe had a beginning, but maybe the universe had a beginning, but maybe it didn't come from someone. Maybe it wasn't by someone. Maybe it came from no one. And so the universe is coming into existence from nothing by no one. Uh, in scientific terms, people sometimes talk about quantum fluctuation. Well, let's, let's again do a little bit of analysis here. The second option is that the universe popped into existence from nothing, by nothing, or from no one. But this concept also appears less than rational because something cannot be derived from absolute nothingness. Now, what is, what is absolute nothingness? Well, I don't know exactly what absolute nothingness is, but I'm going to take a crack at it and say that it would mean no energy, no matter, no space, no power, no mind, no reason, and no potential for any of those things, etc. 
So the idea that something would pop into existence out of out of nothing, meaning absolutely nothing, no energy, no matter, no space, no power, no mind, no reason, and no potential for any of those things, that seems to be an absurdity. It, it does seem that the philosophical and scientific maxim ex nihil nihil fit makes sense. And that means from nothing, from absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing is going to come. Okay. Even quantum particles cannot pop into existence from, from absolute nothing. And there are people who speculate this way. There are people, um, atheists in particular, and I might make a note of that, by the way, that uh, your worldview really matters. Uh, when you do your work in your profession, you do bring your worldview to what you do. You can't help but see the nature of reality and look at the world in which you live and the work you do in light of your worldview. So some of the people who study cosmology look at these realities and say, wow, that doesn't quite comport with what I think is true or what I hope is true. And if you're an atheist, Big Bang cosmology is probably going to create some real consternation. The universe had a beginning. That kind of sounds like the fairy tale stuff I used to read in the Bible. Well, uh, some would like to speculate that maybe the universe did have a beginning, but maybe there's nobody on the other side. But even quantum particles cannot come into existence from absolutely nothing. To conclude otherwise is to violate one of the foundational principles of the scientific enterprise, namely causality. Effects have causes. If the universe pops into existence out of nothing by no one, without a cause, then why are we, why do we believe that the scientific enterprise, which is so deeply tied to causality, has any meaning at all? Okay, in our third option, under options in cosmology, how about the cosmology of Eastern religions? That'll be number three. The cosmology of Eastern religions. We've looked a little bit at the Bible. What about those religions from the East? A third option is to consider the cosmologies of other religious traditions, specifically those of the East. However, the cosmologies of Eastern religions suffer from coherence problems and or do not comport well with the best scientific evidence concerning the origin of the universe. What do I mean by that? Well, Hinduism, let's take Hinduism. Hinduism either affirms that the physical universe is itself an illusion or that it goes through an eternal cycle of expansion and contraction, which, by the way, is quite similar to the cosmological model known as the oscillating universe model. So for a number of years, some people who are sympathetic to Hinduism, who are also cosmologists, they have proposed the idea that maybe modern cosmology might corroborate the truth of Hinduism. And so the idea of a universe that expands, but then contracts, and then expands again and contracts, and again expands and contracts, and maybe this goes on forever. 
So there's an eternal expansion and contraction. Well, that would be quite similar to a Hindu way of thinking. Although, again, sometimes when you read the philosophical writings of Hinduism, you wonder if everything isn't an illusion. I'd like to note as we look at this Hindu symbol that close to a billion people on the planet follow Hinduism or some closely associated path of Eastern mysticism. That's a lot of people who believe that, uh, who believe in a Hindu worldview. The nature of reality uh, for them comes from a, a mystical way of thinking. Well, there's also Buddhism. Buddhism goes all the way back to about uh, roughly 500 B.C. And Buddhism, Buddhism affirms a beginningless and an endless universe, which, interestingly enough, is very similar to the steady state universe model. So, again, just as there are philosophical religious views of how the universe came into being or uh, why it exists the way it does, these ideas also have parallel models in science. And so Buddhists, informed Buddhists, believe that the universe never had a beginning and it will never have an end. It's beginningless and it's endless. In fact, I read a book a few years ago. I teach a, a course at Biola University entitled World Religions and Science. World Religions and Science. And Largely what I do in the class is look at the non-Christian world religions and examine how they use science to try to buttress their particular worldview perspective. So what I like to do is to find books that are representative of the particular religions uh, that also engage in the scientific enterprise. And one of the books I read a couple years ago was written by the Dalai Lama who is the head of the Tibetan Buddhists. Uh, it's entitled The Universe in a Single Atom. The Universe in a Single Atom. Uh, the Dalai Lama is very well educated. He is a very intelligent person. Uh, because of his prestige, uh, he has been allowed to go to uh, some of the uh, uh, leading science centers throughout the world. And uh, he has a real passion about cosmology. And so uh, uh, he says in his book uh, that it appears modern cosmology seems to support theism over Buddhism's beginningless and endless model of the universe. He says that quite candidly. He says that it appears that Big Bang cosmology seems to support theism over Buddhism. He also says, by the way, that if it could be shown scientifically that Buddhism would, was false, he would give up being a Buddhist. He says, however, that he's still holding out, that at some point things are going to reverse themselves. But, but he says it pretty candidly. He says that if it could be shown that Buddhism is, is scientifically falsified, He'd, he'd give up Buddhism. Now, some people would, of course, would say, yeah, but you don't, you don't really believe that, do you? He would always go back and readjust things and everything. Well, uh, maybe so, but I, w I found his, uh, his statements to be quite candid. 
that he wasn't afraid to put his Buddhist religion uh, on the chopping block and, and allow it to be analyzed. I don't think most religious people would be willing to go that far. Now, what about these ideas of uh, an oscillating universe, one that expands and contracts? It's eternal because it goes through this expansion and contraction. An oscillating universe seems to be somewhat compatible with a Hindu way of thinking or a steady state model. This is an eternal universe. There is a there is an eternal uh stabilizing or a steady state of energy that is created to allow for the universe to be infinite or eternal. Well, I think it's fair to say this. The consensus among astrophysicists today is that the oscillating and steady state models of the universe are incompatible with the scientific data. A lot of people held these views for a while until Big Bang cosmology was validated, and a lot of that validation came with the cosmic background radiation discovery. Here's what uh, one author says about the oscillating model, this expansion contraction, potentially eternal. Quote, cosmologists first offered an oscillating universe model with no beginning or end as a Big Bang alternative in the 1930s. The idea was abandoned because the oscillations could not be reconciled with the rules of physics, including the second law of thermodynamics. So people saw the oscillating model as a competition of the Big Bang, and it was, it was a metaphysical view. You don't need a creator. Uh, maybe everything is eternal. Everything is self-explained within the box itself, but uh, this view has fallen on hard times. It doesn't seem to be compatible with the laws of physics. It doesn't seem like you're really able to explain how that, that collapse, that contraction, could then allow for another expansion, let alone over and over and over again. Now, what about the steady state? According to the steady state model, new matter is continuously created as the universe expands. So it always stays at a steady, continued state. Energy used up, energy provided. An eternal universe. Here's what one author said regarding the steady state theory. Notice, by the way, its connection to Big Bang cosmology. Notice as well um, why people propose this idea. Quote, in cosmology, the steady state theory, also known as the infinite universe theory or continuous creation, is a model developed in 1948 by Fred Hoyle, Thomas Gold, and Herman Bondi, and others as an alternative to the Big Bang theory known usually as the standard cosmological model. In some steady state views, new matter is continuously created as the universe expands so that the perfect cosmological principle is adhered to. The article goes on, although the model had a large number of supporters among cosmologists in the 1950s and 60s, the number of supporters decreased markedly in the late 60s with the discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation. And today, only a very small number of supporters remain. Fred Hoyle, by the way, was an advocate of the steady state theory. Fred Hoyle, uh, the British astronomer, cosmologist, 
he's the one who came up with the um, uh, expression Big Bang. He meant it as a, a derisive term. Oh, they just believe in this Big Bang. Well, he was a supporter of the steady state theory. And uh, though he died, I think, in 2000 or, or soon after, uh, he went to his grave denying the Big Bang. The article concludes, the key importance of the steady state model is that as a competitor to the Big Bang, it was an impetus in generating some of the most important research in astrophysics, much of which ultimately ended up supporting the Big Bang theory. So these perspectives of the oscillating model and the steady state theory, they've fallen on hard times. Now, of course, some people would say that the Big Bang will fall on hard times. But um, I don't think that that's correct. I think that whatever happens in the future, it will be a refining of the Big Bang theory. I think the Big Bang theory is indeed here to stay. Whatever, we, whatever cosmological model is presented in the future, it will be a modification of Big Bang cosmology. Okay, our fourth and last option, the multiverse. The multiverse. This is sometimes called the, the mini-worlds hypothesis. Probably the most appealing cosmological approach that currently attempts to salvage a purely naturalistic view of reality is known as the multiverse theory. The multiverse theory. Now, more complex forms of this idea, the multiverse, postulates that a near, a near infinite... Now, I'm not, I'm not terribly good at math, so I'm not sure what a near infinite number means, but those who postulate a, a very complicated view of the multiverse... They say that there are all of these universes and they burst into existence by a mechanism that stands behind and beyond the physics of the known universe. So uh, here's the way of thinking. Uh, you've got this universe. It came into being and it is fine tuned. It has this exquisite design within it. Well, well, look, if we have nearly an infinite number of universes, then one of them is going to be fine-tuned. One of them is going to have all of the necessary prerequisites to allow for life. So maybe we just hit the jackpot. But see, we don't need a God to explain that. If you have virtually every possible scenario thrown out there, then we just hit the right one. And so it allowed for evolution to happen and for human beings uh, to appear on the scene. This is still kind of a naturalistic way of thinking. Uh, sometimes the idea of all these bubble universes that are popping into existence. Our universe had a beginning, but maybe it's just one of many, 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 many universes. According to multiverse advocates, human beings have won the cosmic lottery by emerging from purely natural processes in what may be the most... In, would, what may be the only particular universe, maybe one of the few universes, that has, a lot, that has all of the narrowly drawn physical characteristics necessary to permit complex life. So here, we don't need a God. Maybe there are a lot of universes. We just got lucky. 
we got the one universe where uh, all of the all of the dials are are fine tuned. But see, there's no mind behind it. There's no creator behind it because every possible alternative would be realized or virtually every possible alternative would be realized. And we got the right one. And so, of course, there's design in the universe. We wouldn't be here if there wasn't. We wouldn't be here to notice it. How are we to think about this? Well, I think that there are some very important criticisms to be brought to bear to the multiverse theory, to the many worlds hypothesis. Problems. Number one, first problem. There is no empirical data presently uh, presently in existence that supports the existence of the multi of multiple universes or the causal mechanism that stands beyond it. And so therefore we can conclude that at the present time, the multiverse theory can neither be verified nor falsified. That would lead some people to ask the question, is this even science? We can't see it. We can't observe it. We can't measure it. We can't test it. And so that's a big problem, having a theory that you cannot empirically analyze. A second problem, is this not an infinite regression? Okay, how is it possible that our universe came into existence? Well, what's the cause? Well, instead of coming up with a direct cause, you're saying, well, there are all of these universes. You've kind of just moved back the question. Uh, this is an infinite regression problem. You might ask the question, where did the universes and the causal mechanism behind them come from? Okay. Uh, Aristotle used to talk about the unmoved mover. So we have a universe and it comes into existence and we say, well, who made the universe? And you say, well, God did. We say, well, who made God? You say, God squared. Well, who made God squared? God cubed. Well, who made God cubed? And you go back and back and back and back and back. What's the problem? Uh, somewhere along the line, in order to explain any of this, there has to be something that creates but is itself uncreated. So just moving the question back one won't do. Now, here's what's interesting. It's interesting that all of the leading proponents, and, and it seems that all of them agree, all of the leading proponents of multiverse theories agree amongst themselves that there must have been an ultimate beginning. So I don't know that you ever really get away from the God question, because even if you have these, these complicated multiverse theories, you still have a need for an ultimate beginning. Think of it this way, if you will. This is an analogy I use with some of my college students. Suppose you're on the freeway and you're driving along and uh, the car in front of you brakes really hard and uh, you can't stop your automobile and so you, you crash into the back of the car. And, of course, the, the person in front of you gets out and says, you know, what, what, what's, what's the deal? Why did you hit me? And uh, you say, look, I, I'm really sorry that I hit you, but, you know, the car behind me hit me and I hit you. 
So the two of you then go to the third driver and say, what's going on here? And he says, hey, I'm really sorry that I hit you and you hit him, but somebody hit me. And what if, what if you went back and back and back and back? Um, how would all that cash out? You'd have to have somebody who hits but is not hit in order to have some explanation. Call them the big bumper, if you will, whatever you want to call them. The the idea here is when you think about causality, how do I explain this chain of events unless there is someone who is the cause but is himself or itself uncaused? That's what led Aristotle to call his belief in God a belief in the unmoved mover. Aristotle's God moved, but is himself unmoved. I don't know that the multiverse answers the ultimate question. There's still the question of where this mechanism came from, how it all started. A third criticism of the multiverse, some of the complex interpretations of the multiverse, rather than physical, actually appear to be virtually metaphysical in nature. I mean, they seem to be talking about a universe or universes that are beyond the, the laws of our present understanding of physics. Instead, instead of being physical, it seems to be metaphysical, above and beyond. This seems to be beyond science. They seem to be involved in philosophy in some speculative religious idea. Uh, that doesn't... That doesn't bode well for the scientific community, I would think. A fourth criticism is that is not God a simpler explanation? Science often speaks of Occam's razor to prefer the most economical explanation. Well, you've got all of these worlds, so you've got many worlds versus one God. Isn't there a sense in which God is a better explanation because God is a simpler explanation? Though I must tell you that what simple is isn't always simple to define. But I'll, I'll leave that there and let you uh, read a little bit about that in my book, A World of Difference. A fifth criticism, depending, upon how the univ- depending on how the multiverse is defined, it could comport with the Christian theistic worldview. Well, wait a second here. What do you mean by that? Well, it could be that God has created more than you think. Let me let me do a little history with you for just a minute. Um, I'm going to use my daughter Sarah as an example. Uh, when my daughter Sarah was younger, I homeschooled her for a couple of years. She's still trying to get over the emotional terror of being homeschooled by her dad. Uh, but I remember my daughter initially thought that the uh, Earth and the Sun and the and in those days, it was nine planets. One of them got demoted, so her education is overturned. Uh, she got a, a misunderstanding of cosmology. There are eight planets, and that bothers me because number nine is my favorite number. I, I didn't like it that these scientists excluded poor Pluto. Nevertheless, my daughter thought initially that the whole cosmos was the Earth, the other planets, and the sun. Well, uh, that's pretty natural. Uh, I would say that the ancients thought, well, the, the universe is just what we see. 
But today we realize that actually there is the observable universe and a good bit of the universe we think exists cannot be observed. There's a whole lot more to this cosmos than what scientists can presently observe. Well, maybe, maybe God is more powerful than we could even conceive. Maybe his created order is more complicated. I mean, the church had to come to the realization, wow, there's more than just the solar system. Uh, there are these other galaxies out here and these other suns and, and planets. Well, what we didn't know that then and we know now is, there may be more of the universe that we can't see than that which we can see. Who knows what God has created? Is it not a possible step to then conclude that maybe God has created other cosmoses? Maybe he's created other worlds. Uh, I always tell my church class that uh, in heaven, when you encounter the Lord, you're never going to say, he wasn't quite what I thought he was going to be. You know, when I go on vacation and, or I, I plan something and then it happens, it's like, eh, it was okay. No, that's never going to happen with God. So maybe a multiverse is possible because God created it. God has created other realms, according to the Bible. Uh, Colossians 1, 16 and 17, quote, For by him, the him is Jesus Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Maybe some of those invisible things, we know there's the realm of the angelic beings. Who knows how many other realms there could be? So a multiverse may not be false. It could be true, but it could also be compatible with the Christian worldview. Now, Thinking about science and faith and kind of drawing this together and talking about the dangerous idea of creation. How does my faith relate to science or to reason? Well, listen to what Christian philosopher William Lane Craig says here. He says, quote, that initial event has come to be known as the Big Bang. This cosmological singularity, a singular beginning to the universe, from which the universe sprang marked the beginning not only of all matter and energy in the universe, but of physical space and time themselves. The Big Bang model thus dramatically and unexpectedly supported the biblical doctrine of creatio ex nihilo. That's a dangerous idea. Think about the dangerous idea. You have these brilliant scientists, they're studying cosmology, they ridicule the Bible and religion as superstition, and then they discover that these magnificent instruments that allow them to study the universe actually reveal a universe that comports with what the Bible teaches. The Big Bang model, to quote William Lane Craig, thus dramatically and unexpectedly supported the biblical doctrine of creatio ex nihilo. Wow. The biblical description of, the co of cosmology, creation ex nihilo, amazingly corresponds with the prevailing views of science and makes more sense than the competing views, either secular or religious. 
Now, you might say, I'm not convinced. Or you might say, I haven't seen enough. But what I can tell you is that it appears, based upon the testimony of those who have the best qualifications and who are not necessarily committed to a Christian perspective, they tell us that what we have discovered in cosmology seems to fit pretty well with a biblical perspective. Knowing that the universe had a singular beginning a finite period of time ago makes it very difficult to sidestep the simple but compelling logic of the Kalam cosmological argument. Uh, Here it is. Here's the argument. It's a syllogism. First two statements are premises. The third statement is the conclusion. Number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause for its coming into being. Whatever begins to exist has a cause for its coming into being. We don't say that everything has a cause. We say that whatever begins to exist has a cause for its coming into being. Premise two, the universe began to exist. Three, conclusion, therefore the universe has a cause for its coming into being. Very difficult to sidestep that. Are you going to deny... Will you you deny that things that begin need a cause? Are you going to deny that the universe had a beginning? You'd be out of step with all of scientific cosmology. It seems difficult to not draw that third conclusion that the universe has a cause for its coming into being. Now, one of the things I mentioned before is that sometimes Christians are a little troubled by the Big Bang. They see it as a secular interpretation. They see it as something that is, is going to compete with Christianity or to compete with the Bible. But I want you to know that often it's atheists who don't like the Big Bang model because of its obvious theistic implications. Let me give you a couple quotations here. This is from Christopher Isham. He says, quote, perhaps the best argument in favor of of the thesis that the Big Bang supports theism is the obvious unease with which it is greeted by some atheist physicists. They realize that a beginning, a universe that has a beginning, time having a beginning, and being exquisitely fine-tuned, they realize that that is competing with their atheism, their naturalism. Former editor of Nature, John Maddox, stated this, quote, Apart from being philosophically unacceptable, the Big Bang is an oversimple view of how the universe began, and it is unlikely to survive the decade ahead. This was an article he wrote, Down with the Big Bang, August 10, 1989. Well, that's uh, 20 years ago, and uh, there is more confirmation of the Big Bang now than ever before. Why is it philosophically unacceptable? Because John Maddox is an atheist. That's why. Oversimple view of how the universe began. It's not going to survive the decade ahead. No, it has. And, and so now, uh, now uh, people will tell you that... Uh, If you reject the Big Bang, you are essentially a crackpot. Well, if you accept the Big Bang, what what implications does it have for reality and for truth? 
Agnostic philosopher Anthony Kennedy says this. He says, quote, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he's an atheist, must believe that matter came from nothing by nothing. That matter came from nothing by nothing. That's a, that's a tough philosophical pill to swallow. Well, let me conclude my talk about the dangerous doctrine of creation by quoting a confession that's very dear to me. It's out of the Reformation tradition. It's the Belgic Confession. It was written in 1561. Article 2 sets forth what we call the two books theory. Quote, uh, we, we know him, and the him there is God. We know him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, since the universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God. The first book is the book of nature. It's the cosmos. And it's there to communicate to us God's power, His incredible brilliance, His providential control of, of everything. Second, He makes Himself known to us more openly by His holy and divine word, as much as we need in this life for his glory and for the salvation of his own. So the second book is a real literal book. It's the book of scripture, the two books. One is a figurative book, a metaphorical book, and it goes out to all people at all times everywhere. The second one is a literal book. It comes in propositions and it was given to the Jews. It it came in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes in events and actions, and then is compiled into words. So the two books idea. The first book is God's world, the universe. The second book is scripture, God's word. And when both of those books are properly understood and interpreted correctly, they will cohere. They have to because they're from the same source. Interpretations of the book of nature, science, or interpretations of the Bible, theology. Theology and science may conflict because they're interpretations. But the, the two ultimate foundations of God's world and God's word will never contradict. So at Reasons to Believe, of course, we believe in an integrative model. We believe in putting, drawing data from both books and understanding them. And here are three books that touch upon some of the things that I've talked about this evening. Uh, The founder of Reasons to Believe is my friend and my boss, Hugh Ross. Uh, He writes a lot about Big Bang cosmology in his book, The Creator and the Cosmos. I have a chapter on the existence of God and creation and the development of science in my book, Without a Doubt. And I talk about creation ex nihilo, in my book, A World of Difference. So here are three books that touch upon many of the things that I've said tonight about the dangerous idea of the doctrine of creation. Well, let me stop there and uh, give you an opportunity, if you would like, to uh, ask a question. Uh, Is our microphone working uh, now? Is it hot? Uh, so if you, if you have a question, you're welcome to come up to the mic so that people can 
hear you. We have a lot of people who simply listen uh, to uh, the podcast. They listen to the taped material. So we want you to come to the microphone. And we have a person there right now. Testing, testing, testing. Ken, could you go over one of my favorite arguments for the God, the uh, Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the argument from design. Uh, Sometimes the argument from design is called the teleological argument. The teleological, teleo, let me spell it properly. Teleological argument. And uh, telos, teleos is uh, end or purpose. So the teleological argument is that uh, there are things that appear to be designed and uh, uh, design requires a designer. Therefore, there's things in the universe or the universe itself that were designed. Therefore, there is an ultimate designer. Uh, I think that this ancient argument that goes all the way back at least to Plato, I think that it has... uh, it has been squared, if you will. I think the fine-tuning argument that we hear today, uh, I think this is the teleological argument squared because it's not merely things look design and design requires a designer. Now we even recognize that the cosmos itself, the fundamental laws of physics, uh, gravity, thermodynamics, uh, Uh, You know, uh, all of these physical laws seem to have the exquisite elements in them, the strong and uh, weak nuclear force, electromagnetism, gravity. Uh, The laws themselves appear to be uh, exquisitely and carefully fine-tuned. And, of course, you you can take it even further. Uh, We have the right kind of planet. We have the right sun, the right moon. Uh, We have all of these just right elements where people have begun to talk about the Goldilocks effect, the just right planet, the just right solar system, the just right galaxy, the just right universe. I mean, even Stephen Hawking talks about how things could have gone wrong in the early moments of the Big Bang if it didn't cash out just so. So this argument has, I think, been strengthened by all of this thinking about uh, fine-tuning and those kinds of elements and remains as a very powerful argument for God. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? Come to the mic. Do you want to ask a question? Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. Uh, I I would say that that understanding is is quite correct. What is interesting, uh, this idea of brooding. Sometimes, uh, oftentimes, most of the time, when God's attributes are described, he often seems to have male oriented characteristics. But in this case. There is a time in the Old Testament where it speaks of God as if God were a hen brooding, protecting its chicks. Of of course, God has no no gender. 
God has no sex organs. Um, I think that should tell us a great deal uh, about being careful about how we think about God. We shouldn't create God in our image. We should allow him to create us, us in his image. But sometimes when the Bible speaks about God, it speaks of feminine characteristics. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in one of his books that, uh, uh, you know, if, if your dog had bit the next door neighbor, who would you rather meet, uh, the dad or the mom? He says, I don't want to meet the mom. She's going to come out, you know, swinging. Well, uh, it is that idea there in Genesis uh, the idea that the, that the Holy Spirit appears to be hovering over the new creation, almost as if the creation is like a newborn. And the Holy Spirit is, is uh, sustaining. The Holy Spirit is protecting. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God and therefore was involved in the creation of the universe. Somebody once asked me, well, which member of the Trinity created the universe? I said, well, it was from the Father, by the Son, and through the Holy Spirit. And so the Son and the Spirit are co-agents assisting and working with the Father who is the primary agent of creation. And so here we see the Holy Spirit working in that, in that role as an agent who would preserve and, and to protect. And of course, in Christian theology, there is the, the strong theological principle that when one member, because of the unity, when one member of the Trinity is involved, the others are assisting in that act, even though we can distinguish the Father as the primary agent in creation. You see it in the first article of the Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. The Son is the primary agent in redemption. The Spirit in regeneration, in the inspiration of the, the, the scriptures. But whenever one member is involved, the other members are involved as secondary agents. And so I like the way you've described the Spirit's work, brooding, caring, assisting, observing as, uh, as a mother would do to, uh, to, that, to that small child the, that, that is, has so much value. Yeah, very good. Anybody else? Last call for uh, questions tonight about the dangerous idea of the Christian doctrine of creation. Well, uh, then let me say that next week I will deal with a fourth dangerous idea. We've thus dealt with first the resurrection. We dealt with the incarnation, God walking on the earth. Tonight, the doctrine of creation. We'll look at belief in God, how it makes sense. We'll explore faith and reason. That will be the fourth dangerous idea, that faith actually comports with reason, that faith actually makes sense. So that's where we'll go next week.